Hello, music nerds. Welcome to season two of the Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast. I am your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a Canadian guitarist, songwriter, producer, and engineer, and I've been living and working here in Nashville for the last four years. A couple of years back, I decided to reach out to some of the amazing musicians, engineers, and producers I've met along the way to learn some of their more in-depth stories than what I'd been hearing elsewhere. So between March and August of this year, I'll be releasing a new conversation every Wednesday with someone who I feel has been involved with creating great recorded music. Feel free to reach out to me or leave comments at www.stevedawson.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for free on iTunes. Now, let's get down to another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Greetings to you, fellow music nerds, and thank you for lending me your ears this fine day. This episode is a very special one as it features a conversation that I had with someone who I've gotten to know over the last six or seven years, and I have a huge amount of respect for this guy, Mr. Van Dyke Parks. Van Dyke is someone who I hold in the absolute highest regard as an artist, writer, composer, arranger, not to mention one of the most eloquent and hilarious people on the planet. Usually when I conduct these interviews, the subject is someone that is known for a particular specialty or a specific body of work or an instrument that's easy to put your finger on, and the things that I want to talk to them are very clear and obvious to me, but not so with Van Dyke Parks. His fingers have been on so many elements of music that I almost wasn't sure how to approach this interview, but having known him and worked with him a few times, I also know that he tends to just start going once he started, and I wasn't too worried about it. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Van Dyke Parks, he's made a huge mark on popular music, which is quite impressive seeing as how he really has no or very little interest in pop music at all. He may be best known to the casual music fan as the lyricist for Brian Wilson's Troubled Smile project that was slated to be the follow-up uh, to the epic Pet Sounds album, um, but it never came out at the time. That was during the period when Brian Wilson kind of had his meltdown and, and the album got shelved and um, Van Dyke walked away from that project. I grew up being a big liner note reader. And for me, the name Van Dyke Parks was a name that popped up over and over again on albums um, for artists like Ry Cooter, Randy Newman, Phil Oaks, Little Feet, bands like that. Um, he was credited sometimes as the composer, sometimes as the producer, uh, arranger, piano player, or just mentioned in liner notes of albums that I dug. So I never really knew it, what it was exactly that he did. And as I learned and listened more, though, I realized that it was his creative piano playing and stunning orchestral arrangements on those records and a lot of others that really grabbed me. Um, anyway, my, my good friend Susie Ungerleider, who performs under the name Oh Susanna, casually mentioned to me that she knew Van Dyke when we were on tour together about 10 years ago. And I was like, what? What? Really? That's crazy. And sure enough, um, on further investigation, she told me the story about how 
she was on a radio program, I think in LA, and he was listening and he called up the radio station where she was singing uh, to tell her how much he liked her voice. It was crazy. So anyway, I asked her if she was still in touch with him and if he if she could put us in touch when I realized that he would be great for this project that I was working on. And uh, I was putting together a tribute to a 1920s string band called the Mississippi Sheiks, and I wanted Susie to sing on it. And I figured it would be a great chance to work with Van Dyke on something. So I started a, a dialogue with him. And uh, yeah, we'd talk quite a bit. And we would have these conversations where he would kind of blow my mind with these poetic musings and weird little asides and, sto- and stories, all in his syrupy southern, southern drawl. And I just, I kind of couldn't believe it. And after discussing the project that I was doing and its merits and its crappy budget that I had to work with, uh, Van Dyke finally spouted out one of my favorite lines of anybody uh, of the last decade. And he said to me, let's face it, Steve, the money for this project is a crow, but God damn it, let's make this crow a noble bird. And uh, he said that to me, and he did indeed, and came up with this incredible arrangement that kind of danced around my guitar playing and Susie's voice. And uh, then he joined us up in Vancouver for a couple of shows later that year. And then my band had the huge honor of backing him up in Edmonton at the Folk Festival, playing a bunch of his amazing songs. So it was really kind of a highlight of my life and career. Uh, Anyway, he's very much a character, and I loved working with him, loved talking to this guy. Uh, I was dying to get him on the show, and he was gracious enough to accept. We had to do it over two conversations due to time restraints, so they do hop around a little bit, so there's a little bit of overlap here and there, but whatever. Um, Plus, once Van Dyke starts riffing on something, I didn't dare stop him. So the subjects also veer off into kind of uncharted territories at several points. But I was fully expecting that and wanted to embrace all that kind of stuff wholeheartedly. Honestly, there's no one on the planet like Van Dyke Parks. Anyone that has met him will undoubtedly agree. Uh, Thank you again to all the listeners out there for tuning in. Please come visit me at www.stevedawson.ca. You can make comments there and connect with the podcast and some of the touring that I'm doing. And uh, if you feel inclined to contribute to the podcast with a donation of any sort, that is really the only way we have of keeping this show going. So that is an easy thing to do at the website as well. Um, If you haven't done so already, please also um, go over to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. That really helps us out and it's free and it helps get the word out there. With that, I now bring you my conversation with the mighty Van Dyke Parks. Hello. Yours falsely. Hi, Van Dyke. How are you? Great to hear your voice, man. Good. Good, good. Is this okay? Yeah. Can you hear me okay? Yes, sir. Fantastic. How are things out there? Good? Room temperature. <laughs> as, as expected. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. And I know you're um, tight for time, so I'm not going to... Um, beat around the bush, shall we say. I'm going to just jump right in, if that's okay with you. You can beat around the bush or beat around the Trump. (laughs) Either one would be very appealing, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I think a a good spanking is in order. (laughs) I think you're the man for the job, too. (laughs) (laughs) That's very kind. I'm honored to be part of your, your podcast. I don't do these. I know you don't. I limit my time to... To tweeting, which is equally feckless. (laughs) 
Um, all right. Well, let me uh, let me just uh, start by asking you about um, you've been you've been deeply involved in so much great music over the decades, and I want to pick your brain a little bit about some of those particular projects through your career up until now. But um, first, what I, what I'd love to know from your perspective are maybe you could pick out one or two studio in particular career highlights that that you've been involved in either as a session musician or an arranger or a lyricist or any of those things that you do like in can you describe any particular projects in your memory where everything has really fallen into into place and everything's been really ticking along that was uh memorable in your career well that all of them are equally uh difficult and and <laughs> i think that uh, and i think that it is fair to say that uh, uh, a, a healthy degree of uncertainty is necessary for anything uh, to transpire that is really going to be inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, it takes a great deal of trust. Um, that is, even if you box with God, the very idea, and of course, atheists would be nothing without him, it is, uh, it is also true that that trust then has to extend horizontally. You need to be able to trust people around you. Yes. There's a great deal there's a great deal in the work that I do, and this is you can see this from my first date. Let's look at this was nineteen uh sixty four was uh, my MGM uh single mm-hmm. uh, the first one uh when I walked into the room uh, to record uh Come to the Sunshine with its rapid uh, um, uh, descent of uh, double string instruments. Those were mandolins and mandolas. There were five of them. Uh, they they were rapid, it's true, but they put a sweep into the song called Come to the Sunshine, I wrote for my father. They did come rather rapidly, and uh, the first comment I got, and in that year I was 21 years old and rather frightened. It was deer in the headlights. Uh-huh. And the and the star guitarist Tommy Tedesco said, "We we can't play this shit." Uh, <laughs> was like, uh, it's like you know, you know, two, you know, uh, you know, what is this? So, and Dennis Budimer went ba ba da 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 uh, yeah, so so Dennis Budimer played it. I said, Dennis, that's just a little bit too fast. And uh, then uh, Tedesco got right in line, as did the others. Lorendo Almeida was there. But uh-huh. you see, that that was... So you ask if I had any notable um, memories of, uh, of challenging uh, sessions where everything just kind of went uh, went into... Place neatly. I, I forget exact your exact words, but but that that shows right there the dynamics between the a total uncertainty and uh, <laughs> that is involved involved in sessions. Yeah and, yeah, and and that's what I think you're referring to as the sessions. Yes, and yeah. and also yeah. yeah. So that 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 represents all of that 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 bifurcation of certainty, uh-huh. preparation. Yeah. And 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 degree of uncertainty that 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 really comes with it, and and the epiphany of actually having people put their elbow grease into your work. Yeah, 
I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about um, your your early childhood. I know you grew up in Mississippi, but I'm I'm just kind of curious about like what sort of a role music played in your life with your family, because obviously you got started really young and, and you were involved in playing and composing. So was, was there a lot of music around your house and where exactly did you grow up? Well, my father was a doctor uh-huh. and he was, uh, he had a practice in Hattiesburg. Okay. Although both my father and mother are Pennsylvanians. Oh, okay. That's, that's, they, that's where they were granted land from George the second to William Pitt, the elder. Okay. Okay. So William Pitt, the elder, gave a one Robert Parks 10 square miles of Delaware Indian land. Wow. But years later, and there's a homestead there to, to reflect on its glories. Place that they, as a matter of fact, they were the first iron smelt west of the Alleghenies. They made their own nails. When I was a kid, I'd go up there to Cousin Harry's place. Cousin Harry took care of the place. Okay. And uh, we would go up for the 4th of July and... Uh, to Parks Township is the, what it's called. Really? And yeah, closest town is Leechburg. Okay. It's a small town, probably maybe a couple, thought two or three thousand people, maybe. Okay. But what an experience being there! It's in the, and they have now that they have given the land to the county as a an arts center. People learn quilting there, old time music. This is now what they do there. Yeah, this is now. Okay. Property is like down, the property is whittled down to 650 acres. That's okay. not enough to sustain a dairy farm. Right. Parks is we're in, we're in dairy since the 1740s. But my dad, anyway, diverged. Like his father, he became a doctor. Uh-huh. My great uncle John was a pharmacist. This, you, you know, when I see things like they'd been to places like Egypt and stuff, you know, and, or here's a mantilla from Spain that's, you know, pre, you know, priest, uh, world war one, you know, yeah. and, you know, and you say, where did they get the money? Well, the, obviously the doctor gave the pharmacist a lot of business, right? But, uh, so it's very fascinating, but I happen to have been born by this accident, by my father's peripatetic medical career. He uh-huh. served five years in the army and he ended up in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, dealing with people with, uh, post, uh, traumatic, uh, stress disorder, uh, psychosis. Okay. You know, shell shock and stuff like that. I didn't. I didn't realize they even acknowledged that back then. Oh yeah, my dad was. As a matter of fact, uh, my dad was the chief psychiatric examining officer at the liberation of several concentration camps. Wow! So there was no fooling around in my family. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but I was the youngest of four boys, and this is why I ended up in what looks like a cavalier adventure as a musician. <laughs> but but the thing is, and with their with their glad approval. But so I started, you say, was there any music? All I can remember of Hattiesburg and, and, and a stint in, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Uh-huh. All I can remember is hymns at home and maybe some of the big band records. Okay. I didn't know anything about the blues or what was beyond our porch. Mm-hmm. I just remember that one woman advised my mother when we moved in. She, when, she, when my mother moved in, she, she said, Mary Joy, you should take down the red light. <laughs> That's really good and advice, so, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so my mother did. Of course, she didn't know anything about that. Oh, my God. I don't have any important, intimate remembrances of that. There's nothing to mark me as, you know, like 80 miles from the Gulf Coast. There's nothing of the, the Delta Blues in my blood. Mm-hmm. 
it's just that I knew it was around, and I learned it later on when I went, you know, when because of the folk music craze, yeah. you know, yeah. when when Alan Lomax and stuff, you know. Right. So I was aware of that stuff very early and loved it, and and, and really, you know, staked my my life on on devotion to that inquiry. I was interested in folk music, and I still am today. That's what I'm working on. B chord when they just <laughs> sit there on that B chord and. How do they I'm, do it? I, what I'm doing is I'm orchestrating that B chord for a string band. Okay. That's wonderful. So I'm kind of like Donald Trump. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in office. I'm doing exactly what I promised in the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> so um, now I know that like you went to Carnegie Tech and probably learned. Yeah, yeah a lot that's of, what it was called. Uh, and you, you studied composition and arranging there or. Or, yeah, well, okay. I, I, said, I, said, I studied, yes, that, that I, I was the only undergraduate composition student, call, call that, at okay. that time. Mm-hmm. And um, everybody was too smart to uh, really, uh, most of the people at uh, Carnegie Tech were too smart to be pursuing a BFA, right. which is what I was pursuing. Right. Because they knew that that led to unemployment. And uh, how right they were. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't and, change much. And I, I, I joined SAE. It's a venerable institution, and I thought I might learn something. It was the cheapest rent for the time in Pittsburgh. So I joined a fraternity, mm-hmm. really not because I wanted to, to, to uh, get into a bunch of kidney punches, <laughs> but because for the guys in the locker room, what I wanted to do was just have a place to stay. Right, yeah. So... I can't say too much about my my pleasures at Carnegie Tech. In the meantime, the music was uh, that was dominating academics were, were, was was a study of, of abstract okay. uh, and musical invention yeah. that I thought was very boring and very dark, yeah. and uh, it sounded like the age of anxiety run amok. Okay. And I didn't like it. I was not very sophisticated. The music I had loved all my life was from the Madrigals through the Renaissance, yeah. uh, Barbershop Quartet, sure. melodies that you could, you know, things that you could, tunes that you could uh, carry with you in your heart and mind forever. Right. And that's what I saw. I was interested mostly in, in, in terms of where legitimate, legit goes to the street. That it was like, Beethoven and beyond, the, the romantic music, yeah. the songs of the romantic era. I loved it, you see. I loved yeah. Schumann. I loved, I loved the Spanish composers. I play them today, um, uh, Albanese and Granados, so that you get, you know, like roots that, that you know, li- alive and well in, mm-hmm. in, in piano literature. I do that just to stay alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's how important the piano is to me to this day. Yeah, I can, I can tell that. Your next step where you went out to California and, and I know your brother was playing at, at coffee houses and you're doing some basically yeah. like more well, s- straight up folk music. Was that kind of in rebellion? Yeah. Listen, to? I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. First of all, my most developed memory of Hattiesburg is the day that the piano arrived in the big box uh-huh. and we became, and that box became a big wooden crate and that box became, um, our fort. Right. Yeah. So yeah. So when you said when I when you said uh, I came out to California, right? 
Yeah. You, you ask if it was a rebellion or something? Well, just from the stuff that you were being taught at Carnegie Tech and not really not really digging it, was the folk music sort of more Well, here's the thing. When when my brother when my brother's partner went to Hawaii, they they opened a place here in Pasadena called the Ice House. Very interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, they they were they were they were the template for the Smothers brothers. They had okay. badinage and they were very no very clever, both of them. Carson and his his cohort, Bernie, Bernie Armstrong, whose father was one of the great organists of the, the silent movie era. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Bernie left and so Carson was alone, you know, and there was there were these coffee houses of pulsating wood with, with, with an era, an era of American culture that was of interest to anybody who was alive. I mean, I'd read J.D. Salinger, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I knew there were other uh, realities. They were, there were other gods and stuff like that. And that's when I came to California, I kept an open mind. Yeah. And, um, I was, and I came here, I, I think I'm, I learned in, I think November of 61. Yeah. yeah. Um, so by 62, I, I had maybe like, I had like four months I, when I, when I heard my brother was in limbo and it, you know, was being abandoned by his partner. Yeah. Yeah. I saw it as a great opportunity uh, to okay. take a break a notch year is what they call it. Right. To de- define myself and to do something other than what I was doing, which I knew wasn't of interest to me. Okay. And so I came out to Seal Beach, a small community, on the promise from George Nikos, N-I-K-O-S, who, who owned uh, Le Rouge and Noir Coffee House in uh-huh. Seal Beach, community of 6,300, mostly Navy people. Uh-huh. The Navy base was there. They promised that that, that uh, once I would come out here, we would play a month or two in uh, in Seal Beach, and then Carson and I would go uh, open a, a nightclub that they were going to own in Athens. Okay. All of that was a lie. Uh, it was all just to lure, was, to lure you out there. From them, they they lied to them, boldface. Brought my clarinet. I thought maybe I'd get a job as a, as a clarinet player on the Art Linkletter house party. Okay. It didn't happen because I could. They said, "What are your doubles?" The, you know the other instruments. Yeah, I yeah. could. You know, and no, no, no plan B. And then uh, just within the year, uh, that was my brother died in uh, June of 63. Right. Uh, uh, he was between Carson and me, not, not Carson. Carson and I continued, continued to work. And that was when I got from, because of the compassion of Terry Gilkerson, that's when I got the job to do the bare necessities, right. the arrangement, because Terry knew that we would, we needed money to get black suits and a round trip ticket to the graveyard when, so we could bury our brother. Okay. And he, he uh, had uh, used Carson's able abilities in a, a record called, if you listen to it, it's called The Easy Riders was the name of the group. Mm-hmm. Listen to Terry's song called Take Off Your Old Coat. Okay. Roll up your sleeve. Life is a hard road to travel, I believe. So Gilkison gave me my first job, and I was in '63. So, and so I had I had a union job. And what a okay? fantastic one it was! Well, it just happened to be wonderful. I was just at the right place at the right time. It was not. Um, it was simply a rhythm chart for you know to get things started. Uh-huh. I think we had a, a, a couple of wind instruments. Tell I mean, me. it, 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 con- yeah, it convinced me that I was employable and there was such a thing as employment. 
Phil Harris was the name of the man. So that he said about the trumpet player, he said, that guy couldn't add lip a belch after a radish dinner. <laughs> Which I thought was a very funny thing for Phil Harris to say. Obviously, you've remembered it many years. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things might come, might come in handy someday. <laughs> I think it will, actually. Let's go from the, 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 the first session that I had in my name to the, the, the one that I'm looking forward to, which is, uh-huh. uh, which, in which it is, a, it is a large orchestra. They happen to be in Macedonia, and the session will be conducted by Skype. I have wow. labored for, for about, I must say, the better part of three weeks on a full orchestration. Wow, and it's uh, and it is a, uh, it is to me a thing of great beauty. It is as fine as anything that I've seen from Fabergé, or in the concert halls. Uh, it just to me is a gr- great deal of, of excellent work and clarity that comes, from, total endeavor in the face mm-hmm. of a limited talent. And you can get a lot <laughs> done if you just work real hard. And that's that's what I do. I work real hard. And now I'm in the same position I was in 1964 at Ami Hadani's studio in Hollywood with Come to the Sunshine for MGM Records. This one is for a group called Hopium, H-O-P-I-U-M, which is a, a very funny word, I thought. Yes. Something like something that you'd expect out of Lewis Carroll or Charles Dickens. <laughs> is that an American group? It's a British group, I gather. I've, I've, I've had a Skype conversation and the Skype will be the operative uh, uh, tool for, for communicating all these desires because the session itself will be conducted on Skype. I'll be here at home in Pasadena looking at them. And, uh, so, and I am just as uncertain about this, although I look at it, it's a thing of great beauty. I've studied it, uh-huh. and, 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 and of course, by now, I'm 73, so I have... A, a heightened ability for um, self-recrimination. I am my own <laughs> word critic, and 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 in arranging, which is what I do, and I think it's a reason that perhaps that you've called me because of my ability as an arranger, which I think is is evident now and 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 known. Uh, this is with no regard for the vocals or the songs that I've tried to express uh, opinions or or uh, affections, those, uh-huh. are, uh, at, those are at issue with the mass midget mind and discerning critics. They wonder <laughs> why in the hell did I ever do songwriting, but I did ar- learn how to arrange in the process. And yet, here I am at the age of 73, purged for another session this week, and just as uncertain as I could be. I think that's that's probably an important way to feel. Like I think if you went into a session, especially like an orchestral one where so much is at stake, feeling, well, nothing can possibly go wrong here, then you'd probably be in a lot of trouble. Well, yeah, you know, um, if you look at my first album, for example, the um, the French horn solo and uh, that announces the beginning to a march in in a piece called the All Golden. You're talking about song cycle here. Yeah, uh, in yeah. song cycle, uh, French horn is is. Uh, Required to the piada piada da 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 dum pa pa pum, and he's required to go up to an E. Good Godfrey, that's at the that's at the outer limits of of a of a horn player's easy negotiation, and right. and fortunately in the position was Vince De Rosa, 
who had been the first horn player for many group, many uh, outfits. One of them, of course, of the Fox Orchestra for Alfred Newman and so forth. He was, and he had no problem. So you can also you also find yourself uh, getting immediate rewards for any courage that you have about about how players might respond to the challenges and that lie in front of them. Yeah. Actually, that brings up something I, I really want to, I, I want to talk to you a bit about Song Cycle. Um, but particularly, now that you mention it, um, I'm interested how you approached going in there. I don't know how old you were, probably 23, 24, when, that, when you made that record. But um, well, I was 23 when I wrote it. And yeah. it was, uh, and it was issued when I was 24, so they could have a year to write it off before they sold it. <laughs> um, which, which is which is what Warner Brothers did for every record I presented to them. Which is kind of it's called a tax dodge. Right. But uh, we we know the record business is crooked, and that's why I'm no longer in it. I understand. So making that record. How was um, navigating kind of what you're talking about? Navigating dealing with an orchestra as a basically as a kid, you you couldn't have had a ton of experience with orchestra and conducting and things like that. But there's a ton of um, of really intricate orchestration on that record. So I'm wondering how you dealt with that in the studio as not only the composer but the producer. Um, or what was the situation? Was there somebody else conducting the orchestra? I'm just wondering what the relationship well, between you no, no. and those players was. No, well, well let's, 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 it's fair to say that, that I think uh, Lenny Warnker is credited as producer, and I would not have been able to get that record done had it not been for his insistence. But because, uh-huh. uh, of course, I, 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 I questioned the very use of the word artist. They use that. Uh, in contracts, the word artist for, for uh-huh. music, musicians who get funded for sessions. They call them artists, which to me is a bunch of horse shit. The fact <laughs> is, artists, are, artists uh, have been in, in legion uh, always uh, reserved for visual work. But, but the, and so the whole thing of the definition of the, the terms, such as artist, producer, and orchestrator and all that. Those those are sometimes some people call uh, uh, themselves arrangers, and then hum a few bars. Right. Some people say some artists say that they collaborate with with their arrangers, which of course is also specious. There is no such thing as collaboration in orchestration. You're alone and you're responsible for every goddamn note. Yes. You must remember that. You must remember that. And uh, it's, the, the, if you get the money, you must hold the bag. Right. You, you must be, you're responsible for it. So, so then let there be no confusion about that. I've never c- collaborated with anybody on an orchestration. <laughs> I've just worked very hard and am deeply moved by the trust that it takes to do that. So when Song Cycle came up, of course, I wanted, I was told to do the album. I'd done a single called Donovan's Colors. And they were amused that it was picked up and played on a jukebox in Greenwich Village, and and reviewed with the uh, idea that I was an artist. And Warner Brothers uh, hired me on. I'd, I'd worked for Brian Wilson, so they figured I knew something about studio procedures, and I did. Right. But but the orchestration was was to me, as I look at it now, very ad hoc. 
Uh, that is, I worked real hard. I had an assistant, uh, Kirby Johnson, and I would uh, make him do the instrumental transpositions and stuff. He was more in the nature of a music preparation. But the fact is, I wrote the vertical, uh, yeah. the, the, the up and down on the paper, the thing, the, the parts, if there were four French horns, they were, I wrote them all. It's a very good question of yours about how I would manage to get that done because I'd had no experience in actually providing orchestration. Well, I had done some arrangements. I worked for my brother's group called the Greenwood County Singers, and I arranged vocals here and there, and I'd been to school. I went to Carnegie Tech for two and a half years. Uh-huh. I left there, which was occasioned by my brother's death. I came, that's why I stayed out in California. But the the record itself, I think, represents, even though it has these orchestrational fascinations. Yes. Because interested in the way music would sound, that was peculiar uh, peculiar to the studio, not a, a music that would not have been possible acoustically. I had heard that when since 1948, when it was when I became aware of Cocktails for Two by Spike Jones. I was aware of the, the, some phenomenal studio results. Um, so by the time that I got into the studio, having been passed uh, Les Paul and Mary Ford, that we look at 1954, I believe, was How High the Moon and yeah. Lover. I think when we look at uh, the Les Paul's most brilliant uh, multi-track work, um, I, I had my own lessons to learn. But yet, Song Cycle is, to me, a thumbprint of a pianistic composition. Uh-huh. My, my favorite associations were pianistic. It was the music of people like Schubert and Schumann who wrote songs, and Hugo yep. Wolf, a lot, and songwriters, to throw in a good margin of, uh, of dance band music, because my dad did that to get through med school. But, but essentially, my experience as a musician was from the people from the keyboard, uh-huh. the songs the songs feel pianistic to me. Uh, whether right. it's a, wh- right. whether it's the All Golden, which I mentioned, or Come to the Sunshine, which to yep. me sounds yep. very brill building. The fact is, all of that would derive from the keyboard. So I had the keyboard as a reference, and I would make orchestrations out of what I played at the piano. Yeah, then. And- yeah, and that and and you can hear it, and that's how I did. Now that's how I stayed, looking like I was in charge. But in <laughs> fact, no one was in charge, and you can hear it in the record. You do but think? I think, therefore, I am. And, <laughs> and 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 I think it's a great record. As do I. But 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 it's it's very it's impossible to find any practicable. It's not like you're not going to derive any anything from it that is specific. It is so abstract, and I had no idea about what my duties might be to be well communicative or or uh-huh. concrete. Uh, because I had never I had never done a record. It, it was beyond my imagining that anyone would listen to it or even get real angry if they had to listen to it. <laughs> so, but here we are talking about it forty years later. Yeah, yeah, and of course it it is it's major. Black Ink and a very uh, uh, important asset to Warner Brothers in their artists and repertoire development. The people who came to Warner Brothers uh, obviously 
many of the artists who came to Warner Brothers uh, had the reasonable assumption, well, if they're, if they're crazy enough to let him do it, we can too. That's one, one of the things David Crosby said in his first autobiography was uh-huh. he and, and Dave, David Lindley, they were sitting in a coffee house in Santa Barbara, and, and David Crosby turned to Lindley and he said, if these guys can get away with it, so can we. <laughs> so, and uh, that's in his book. Uh, now, so you can hear that pianistic approach in Song Cycle. And that, that I, uh, some of, for example, some of my favorite music from the piano, I mentioned to the, the 19th century romantic composers, uh-huh. was, was uh, George Gershwin. Yeah. George Gershwin's, I think, most exemplary performance, that is, where it really, a uh, performance imbued with his personality and personal touch, uh, devoid anybody else. No, nothing fancy, just a piano. Uh-huh. Is the two piano is the two piano works that he did, that is George Gershwin playing with himself, and in that you hear a real judicious, a very beautiful result of um, of of focus on mid to low range events with soprano or high end results. Mm-hmm. So he got from a piano what would be the blood sheet, is what they called it in the old days of film scoring. That's the base, the foundation for uh, any kind of orchestral imaginings. Uh-huh. You, you, your piccolos and your flutes and so forth. All these articulate, tightly wound ideas then juxtapose to the sustained events or rather more percussive sounds from the, the bottom end. So you look at that. Look at Gershwin's two piano work and you'll see how I might have been inspired by okay. how, the, how the piano could inform me in yeah. arranging. And I had a, uh, I grew up, I got a TIAC, uh, a four-track tape machine. I, uh-huh. I had, you know, at one time I had a, a Moog recording equipment. I, I, had, I had microphones in my house when I was early in the game. I was totally interested in how the microphone would, uh, would be the esophageal passage through which music would then come to the largest audience known. And that was in popular music in the 60s and 70s. Sure. As far as translating what you're doing on the piano to these to the orchestra, how difficult was it for you at that point to translate to a, a, like a big orchestra? Because um, that on Song Cycle, that's a full orchestra, right? Or is it, a, is it yeah, abbreviated well, it, in some sort? Well, no, I, I wouldn't think there was anything abbreviated about it there. It's funny to me. Uh, you hear a dub, double quartet, uh, double reed instruments, a double quartet of double reed instruments in the eagle and me. You uh-huh. hear in, in here, in, in, uh, in uh, that wasn't on the album, but uh, uh, I call that full. I call, of course, I call uh, quartet. So I'm now doing quartet music. To me, that is just as yeah. as, as as demanding as composition can be. Yeah. And in the All Golden, there's a a piece about when I went through my father's war chest up in the attic. I wrote a piece called The Attic, and there are eight cellos in that. And that's to me. That's that's a full responsibility. I naturally, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't have a ball of brass, but I. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I had a, uh, uh, I didn't put a tuba on that record, but I had a, 
a bass bone and a bone. Plas right. Johnson was there, I remember. No, not, no problem. No problem. Okay. No problem. And, and, and as a matter of fact, no, I still use a keyboard with reference, but it, not all ideas uh, mm-hmm. ha- come from a keyboard. Sometimes they come while you're washing dishes, you know. So, right. so the idea, then, of course, is to get to uh, write down what you dream on the fly, and that to me, that's that is that's the real sweat of composition and yeah. musical aptitude. It's the alacrity, it's the speed in which you can seize an idea that just occurred to you. Now, that's right. that's why I allow for uh, for um, and this doesn't have to get uh, to turn into religiosity, but <laughs> I have a definite idea that there is a superior power, and just for re- for for a convenience of communication, let's call it God. Okay. And and I believe in God. As a matter of fact, I even believe in dog. I've got one of them too. <laughs> so, all of, but but it's a belief structure. You know, it's it's like you just go. You must be willing to make mistakes. You you have to you have to yes. you have to experiment. And obviously, song cycle is a lesson in what not to do as well. <laughs> Well, it's it's definitely experimental in that in that way. Well, uh, it yeah, it is. You know, I hear somebody like I, I championed uh, Rufus Wainwright's entry into recording. Uh, it would have happened it anyway, as I told Lenny Warnker in a in a handwritten note. This kid is inevitable. If you don't want to produce him, I do. Well, Lenny saw to it that somebody else was appointed for the job. But I I followed Rufus. Says had did did I think five uh, string arrangements for his first album. So as I followed him, and I don't listen to popular music, there's absolutely nothing I can learn from this, from popular music. I think I learned it all. Uh-huh. I'm just still studying. I'm still studying Merle Haggard. Right. And uh, I'm still studying people who have come before me. I'm doing that work. I'm not so interested in music of our time. As a matter of fact, I'm doing everything I can to avoid the present I tense, and I, and, I, and I always have with, with my music. I always have. I don't listen. I couldn't even listen to the Brits adopt a, a bottleneck that just revolted me. I talk, <laughs> about, talk, about, talk about rape and run. I'm from Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi. You, yeah, down straight. So, and, I, and then a whole bunch of cowboys came out in the 60s. You must remember how everybody wanted to look like a cowboy. And... Uh, and uh, Neil Young made a very old man of me very quickly. But so I think we've we've satisfied the idea that uh, the experimentation was important. Yes. At that time, that was in the halcyon days, the growth of analog recording, the idea of making one mandolin, as I did with uh, Ry Cooter's record, Uh survive a room with trumpets in it and so forth. Right. That 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 took the microphone. That was a phenomenon that we just learned how to exploit then. But by the time I saw someone like Rufus Wainwright come along, and in his second or third album, been spending more and more money on limousines and uh, <laughs> and cart and carting companies, and and just just absolutely thick, over the top. Yes, over the top. Uh, I mean. To me, and, and and much much of rock is like that, and, and uh-huh. you know it's all it's it's gotten the, the pop rock thing has gotten louder and down to, to now we're in techno. Uh, yeah. that's, I mean, I've I've arranged, I've orchestrated for for Skrillex. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, I've been all over the map. 
the fast cash that the music rep, music business represented in the 60s and 70s. I was right there, right under the chairman of the board of Warner Reprise. You were right in the middle of it all. I was right under the chairman of the board on an organization chart. Yeah. So that was, that's a, an org chart is how they, uh, they show corporate responsibilities, pecking order, as it were. I was right under Mo Austin. But, but I saw a lot of people come and go and get their, get their big houses. Some of them lost them. Some yeah. of them lost their lives. Yeah. But, but there was a lot of profit, and all of that is gone. It is. It's really so different now. The final nail in the coffin was when the public assumed that, that music, uh, that must be free. And, and I, I railed against that in an article in the Daily Beast, uh, if you look up. Yeah. And that, yeah. of course, I stand by it. I think that that's a fine piece of literary work. I worked hard on that essay to try to st- understand what the impact of recording would be on artists. So I went back to the very first, Madam Schumann Hunk, on uh, from with singing Danny Boy, John Philip Sousa denying uh, anybody the right to record him or his music. So we have no Sousa because he felt that the music business, it, it, by, by its very nature, would would destroy music and uh, and, and be very poor uh, influence on musicians themselves. He has proven, I think, to be Correct. just about right. Yeah. 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 I was interested in sound, and I wanted to make the world a more beautiful place. I really do wish that I had more, I had had more success and focus uh, in uh, what I should be doing about the song itself, because of my regard for the song, it stands alone as a very important ingredient in music to me. The yeah. song, and all of the cameo, it seems, in nature, it has epic proportions. That is why Bob Dylan got his representative role, and I think he was chosen as representative, of the literary award from the Nobel Committee. Right. For, because of the impact of song. Yeah. That's how no. important song is. And I'm not very good at that. I wish well, you, I were because... You, you downplay that, but, but I think you've got some amazing songs. You know, like that song, Cowboy, for example, that, we, that I had the honor of playing with you uh, a few times. And like that to me is, is a real pinnacle of American songwriting. And I wonder, uh, you seem to downplay your songwriting abilities, but that proves you wrong right there. Can you tell me a bit about what your process is like for songwriting? Um, I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I do. I do want to say something. Uh, yeah. to, uh, that uh, I'm not taking exception with you, and to dis- disagree is not to disrespect. As a matter of fact, ever, it should not be. But, no. but so again, and I really respect your musicianship, Steve. So when I talk about the success as a songwriter, I don't mean that it just is. You know that we see it something of great fascination, and you're very nice to mention Cowboy. I think it's a, I think it's a good song, but to be, but a great song is a song that just uncorks and that's atmospheric that every and and that people embrace as their own and they sing it and and it, it invites participation. It's a, to me, that's really what the success of songwriting is all about. I tell you the truth, and this is something of an announcement. <laughs> I I need to make a living, so I'm going out on the road, 
and and do some shows. Fantastic. But when I do, when I do, I'm not going to go out and look like a bad uh, imitation of Randy Newman on a uh, late in life uh, uh, huddled over a piano uh, in a, a, a fool's errand. I'm going to um, speak. I'm doing the spoken word, and oh. it's two quartet. It's just to quartet. I'm going to debut the first, the first uh, matter of minutes. I don't think that the whole thing, but but I'll debut it at, with the Kronos Quartet up in San Francisco. Well, I hope we get to hear that soon. That sounds awesome and exciting. What's the spoken word stuff like? Is it abstract or is it? Um, it is. It is advisory, but don't be scared. It's not my <laughs> advice. It's, this is these are the these are the prescient thoughts of Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Uh, to me, my favorite beat poet, and part of the reason I came out here, not only Steinbeck, and I, I never lost my fascination for the beauty of, the, of their of perspective, the civility, the decency of the era, uh-huh. and, the promise that, and the promise that it held. Berlin Getty, for example, like Ginsburg, boxes with God. He hates God. I love this uh, uh, dilemma. Because we all have it. Right, right. Atheists would be nothing without God. So what we need to do is look at that, I figure. So I'm doing, it's kind of like I've come full circle in in what it is Uh uh, that I came to California to do. Yes. Uh, I I am able, I'm looking forward, and I say, my mantra is, my best work is ahead of me. I'm telling you something. I'm doing my best work. I mean, I I, I, I dig what I dig. I dig me. I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, um, I'm so fortunate. Yeah, but it, but it's 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 my own fault. You Nobody, know, and it's my own fault. I accept uh, that I've uh, uh, all my imperfections. I just wish that I could make a bigger difference for society. If it's okay with you, I, I wanted to ask you about a couple of. Um, sessions back in the in the day when you know you mentioned coming to California and there was that really interesting scene going on with with people like Ry Cooter and Lowell George you were involved with a lot as well and Randy Newman um I'm curious about that first Ry Cooter record which I know you hold in high regard in his catalog and uh, I just wonder like what was the what was going on back then like were you were you guys playing as a band a lot there was those you know Richie Hayward was around and Roy Estrada from Little Feet and and you're on that first Ry Cooter record with and that amazing um arrangement for one meatball uh, I'm just wondering if you can maybe talk a little bit about that first record in that session Ry's re- first record wouldn't have happened if I hadn't co-produced it guarantee you um, Warner Brothers was more interested in Dean Martin at the time, <laughs> but, 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 and rightfully so. They, they, uh-huh. He did, Dean Martin was a great singer. They could not have understood the voice, and Rye himself was a very self-critical, of course, and I had high standards, uh-huh. but I had a great time on that because, no, we weren't a band. Roy Estrada, I got, uh, I, uh, I knew he needed money. Uh, he had been in, he had been in the mothers of invention uh, yeah. as I had been as, as had you, right? Yes, I had. And, uh, so I knew Roy, he's now in prison for life. Richie Hayward needed money. Jimmy Gordon, who happens to be in prison now for life yes, yes. for, for having axed his mother yes. to death in his, uh, 
psychosis. Yes. Uh, not not drug related. Uh, actually went nuts and murdered his mother. But yeah. so you look at you look at the the records, which are uh, the albums they call them, which are which are just a residue of a bunch of social stuff. Uh-huh. Um, so Ry Cooter, I worked with with Ryan. I just had a great time. Very few people know this, but Bill Monroe loved pianos. It's just you couldn't find one in a club uh, often. But he had no objection to it. So there's for any folk Nazi. Uh, it's just ridiculous to to hold that that the piano has no place in bluegrass or or in roots music. It certainly oh, that's does. Interesting. Yeah, figure a lot of people think that that's not not legit. But then, what when when the Lowell George thing? This is just to encapsulate it. I had seen uh, I was I had an office at Warner Brothers. Lowell George's group was dumped uh, summarily. Little Feet. And uh, after the first album, Russ Eidelman and so forth, and all those people, Teddy Templeman, they just abandoned that group. They all was very unprincipled in my mind, and all it did was just leave them broke. Right. So uh, I just remember when, when it came time for me to discover America, I picked up the phone and I called Lowell and gave him a job. Lowell had been in the Mothers as well, after me, not, yeah. not simultaneously. Oh, okay. I, left the mothers, I left the Mothers after their Shrine Auditorium Actually, there was one job right after the Shrine Auditorium where uh, Vito, the dancer for the group, he would dance. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, he had a son who fell through a skylight because three-year-old boy was not being watched. Oh and God. I thought if, that's, if that was the nature of the chaos that the mothers of invention could invent, I was not interested. So wow. I left the group. I left the group before they got their first, con- their first album. Did, but then later were you playing, on, so you were you see, playing piano in, in the mothers? I played keyboard and uh, and did three arrangements. Okay, for which for which I got a canceled check. <laughs> Charming. But uh, but 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 um and also I wasn't interested in, in absurdism and that was the nature of Zappa was absurdism. That is not right. to say he wasn't he wasn't talented because he was. Yes. But then that that's why I I you know it was like crossing lines. You know I, I there was a line in the sand between Lowell George and Ry Cooter, you see. Right. Uh, there was a very big deal at the time. It was just juice when I, when I, went up, when I uh, had Lowell on that record instead of Ry. It was really juice. And, uh, but I don't think Ry uh, was, uh, was uh, upset by that and understood it, I think. Which record are you talking about? Discover America. Oh, Discover America. Okay, right. And then uh, a Japanese group came over, asked me to produce their album. I told them I was too busy. Lowell was in the studio with me. I was working on my record, and uh, we were making up that song called um, Sailing Shoes. Yeah. I had a bass marimba in the studio. I remember that was very impressive. Did you and Lowell write that song together? Uh, evidently not. But in reality, yes? I hold it, yeah. I was yeah. worked on the song with him. That's where we were working on that song when when seven people came in the control room, which was... Uh, a lot, supposedly a closed session, uh, probably because we were smoking a lot of pot. I was wondering if you could tell me just a little bit about your relationship with Lowell George. Uh, he's an, an important musician to to me in my life, but obviously, I, you know, he 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 died before I was even playing music, really. But um, I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your meeting with him and and some of your. I, I know he was a, a close friend of yours, and and maybe. Uh, a favorite memory working on music with him. Well, my my reputation preceded 
me with Lowell, and that's for one good reason. I'm older than he is. I was uh-huh. in the Mothers of Invention before he was. That was a very big point. The fact is, we we met each other when I was when I had a job I was working at Warner Brothers. I could get things done, and I watched Lowell come through. That the Little Feet did their first album, yeah. and I was I was I was drawn to it. I liked it. Mm-hmm. I knew that there was some talent there, and then they dropped them. Teddy Templeman at right. all. They all just abandon them when the record didn't sell yeah i mean how could it sell when they, there was no way to sell it you must remember this is all these are uh, were, uh these are the days when it was um promotion was dependent upon um fm college uh radio yeah okay there were not there wasn't this um matrix of uh, performance circuitry that you have now you know this mm-hmm. uh you know there wasn't it wasn't like that and then the only thing that was really going to feed into this was the, the folk music craze, you know, had, had developed the franchisement of music so that Peter, Paul, and Mary could go from one town to another, and, and college campuses were generally the nexus for events like that. So there was already, the management skills were already applied when rock and roll showed up. Yeah. And anyway, so here comes Lowell. I had finished um, um, Rye Cooter's uh, first album, yeah. Randy Newman's first album, and, and I saw saw this guy in his misery, just hanging around looking for a job. So I did. And I saw Lowell as somebody who could really contribute to, to our American culture in a very significant way. Uh-huh. I agree. I loved the, uh, my favorite blues artist was Howlin' Wolf, as was his. I was preceded on stage by Howlin' Wolf's daughter in accepting the Mississippi Musicians Hall of Fame Award. And it occurred to me how ironic that was that Lowell George, who was absolutely had a vise like grip on fluent, his fluency in the blues, was just mm-hmm. remarkable. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, he crossed the racial divide. And I thought that was just okay. wonderful. I said, we would really drive Lowell berserk. He'd spin in his grave to know that I'm receiving this award <laughs> and he ain't here but to get <laughs> <Totally>. one. Because <laughs> we had a very. Um, Beneficial, mutually beneficial uh, sibling rivalry. Yeah, it sounds like it. About who was who was the most manly man. Right. He would. He, he made it plain to me early in our in our uh, uh, friendship that he had a brown belt in karate. Oh. So I never never got any foolish ideas. I always kept that in mind. Yeah, you got to. But yeah. and I also I thought I was very clever because I said, well, why did you play? He said flute. He said, well, you know, he said uh, actually I played. Uh, at Hollywood High, he said he played piccolo. I said, "Well, why'd you do that?" You know, meaning that you know, are, 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 you know, are you a homosexual? <laughs> yeah, so you know, I mean, I just was just curious. It sounds so uh, effete, yeah, effeminate. Yeah, yeah. you know, why are you? So why the piccolo? He said, and he just looked at me without missing a beat. He said, "It's the lightest thing in the in the band." Yeah, man, I totally dig it. I get it. So, <laughs> so everything about Lowell, and and then I've extended to the way he. Made up songs. For example, he had a, a machine called a donkomatic. What was which, that? Uh, belched out. So, oh, like a like an like an early drum machine or something. Yeah, a primitive drum machine that was just as, as distinctive in its sound as you know um, a Farfisa organ or right. you know it just just uh, it had a sound mm-hmm. and. Uh, he often would take uh, his, um, in developing his material, 
uh, against the, the, the wall of skepticism that Warner Brothers maintained, he would put the, the donkomatic into the um, pig, pig nose to oh, the pig okay. nose amp. Sure, and make it all ratty and distorted. Yeah, yeah, and and now of course that sounds like very ho hum, but at the time it was absolutely like, you know, he had his own madness and he was pursuing it, and yeah. and it was and it was totally pragmatic. And you know, then how he hurt his hand, you know, with the model airplane thing. I mean, advanced, which is what went. That's that was a determinant to get into bottleneck, by the way. But I did, I did support. The continuance of the group. I came up with the title, Feats Don't Fail Me Now. <laughs> a great title, yeah. I arranged, I mean, this, is, this makes me a man of great import. Um, <laughs> the other thing, uh, what was the other contribution I must have made? <laughs> I arranged one, um, what you call it, um, one piece called um, Spanish Moon. And the reason I'm happy about it is because I was in a position to do it. And there's no, and I take no pride in it. It's just that I'm so so happy that I got to do the right thing. And can, about Lowell George, I feel I did the right thing to Lowell. He could not have had a more loving or better friend. And um, I have a picture of him right next to my speaker mm-hmm. here in my workroom. And it is a picture of Lowell George embracing a gravestone. Mm-hmm. The gravestone has the words Elizabeth Parks on it. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an old Polaroid that I took in a cemetery in Cockyville, outside the town of Cockyville, Maryland, where uh, Lowell's group was uh, recording with George Mazenberg. Mm-hmm. It was as if Lowell was uh, making the point that he'd outlive, he'd outlive me. Uh. And uh, it was like, and, and had a, a a sinister grin on his face. <laughs> so happy was he uh, to be, be be at the tomb of a Parks. I thought it was so great. Uh, and so at that, that is, I see that every day. When I go to work, yeah. I see Lowell. Beautiful, man. I know you're very uh, sick of talking about Brian Wilson, but I am curious about, if, if you wouldn't mind talking just for a minute about your the way that you uh, worked with him on, on the Smile record. I'm curious in particular about, you know, your approach with lyrics, whether you were bringing him complete lyrics for that project or whether you worked with in him. In my work for Brian Wilson, uh, and I, that's the way I look at it, I was working for Brian Wilson, not the Beach Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he, he would play different pieces. Okay. And, the pieces had, and the pieces that he wanted words on. And the pieces had uh, syllables. The word, uh, okay. uh, and uh, melodies, had, melodies have syllables. So as they go, da 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 it just takes some thinking that sure to does. do that. Yeah, it really does. And none of the n- not and not in one single case did I ask for him to drop a syllable. That's the way I approached my disciplined work. It's very disciplined. great torque. I admit great torque. 
so, he had some very good dope, but I think it didn't <laughs> destroy helps. the fact that we, we we came up with something good. Would he play you a song and kind of like hum the syllables and you'd go away and write the lyrics and bring them yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, oh, cool. yeah. Yep, exactly. And I sit there with a legal pad. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, look, I tell you, I was hoping that he would do a Help Me Rhonda or uh, God Only Knows to throw something, throw a dog a bone that, you know, give, let's have a hit. You know, let me be part of that Tony Asher dynastic, you know, Mike Love, the rest of all the people who have somehow come up with a hit. Yeah. And it all sounded very abstract to me. Right. But uh, I defy, and then very interesting to me, uh, to just to put a proper perspective on my real importance to the Smile Project. Although, yes, I've made a big deal about uh, moving west and write what we know and trying to have indi- uh, implicate the mm-hmm. American expansion manifest destiny. Mm-hmm. But in fact, one time after after doing some remedial work, filling in some spaces that were left uh, 40 or 50 years before, I continued the lyrics. So no problems like riding a bike just got on and mm-hmm. it did a, a provided where, where the more um, words were needed mm-hmm. only missing uh, because of Mike Love's Tanty, right. the Tanty Mike Love had that, 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 that is why the, the work was not completed. Yes. When, when you did come back the, to it, was, was it... Uh, but then when I came back to it, many years later, it, just, it's, it was so, like, like, already, it just... And I, uh, I believe this is ten, a testament to the, the invention and decisions of Darian Saharana, or I don't, even know, I don't even know how to pronounce his name. The guy in Brian's... His musical director. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I don't know why they don't take any credit for doing that uh, assembly for me unless they're under a non-disclosure clause. So I, I just want to salute Darian for his help. He's amazing, that guy, yeah. Yeah, and then I put in the words, and it was so much fun. Then, then the record came out at Brian Wilson's, Brian Wilson's Smile, yep. it says on the record. Uh, they sent me one. <laughs> very, very kind then, of them. And then came the Grammy Awards where all those people sit in tuxedos uh, to uh, acclaim themselves. Yes. And uh, Smile was awarded a Grammy for Best Instrumental. I know. Horrifying. Not. Had nothing to do with the words. The <laughs> words didn't matter. Ultimately, when it came time... You for know the, that's for not the, true. The, the you big know trip. No, no, I, I don't know anything. I'm 74. I, I knew something when I was 73. Okay, it's, it's long gone. Yep. That was a Japanese group called Happy End, and they wanted a record producer. They wanted the California sound. They wanted the Burbank sound, and they wanted me to produce that record. They gave me a pearl. I bowed. They gave me a pearl as a present. A and uh, then, uh, yeah, they brought a pearl for me. I was mad when when I went in the control room. I was angry that they were there, uh, uninvited, mm-hmm. and um, and they opened the their attaché case. The representative opened the attaché case, and it was filled with twenty dollar bills. And I went out. I started. We went out of the room because I wept. I was so uh, humbled by that uh, gift of that pearl. Uh-huh. And then I composed myself. I went back in the control room, and the attaché case was open, and Lowell had his arm around the lid and he said, I think we can make music out of this. I was too busy. Quite frankly, I was finishing my record and my contract obligation. 
uh-huh. but that's when Lowell Lowell got to produce the the happy end. Okay. For the, for the, the, by the the song that Lowell and I wrote on the spot called Sayonara America, that became a number one hit in Tokyo, and it established that band called Happy End. And from that band, there's a couple of guys. Hosono was one of the Haromi Hosono was a big star in Japan, and um, the other one was uh, uh, Ruichi Sakamoto, who got the Academy Award for his soundtrack for The Last Emperor, and his son just did the. The Revenant and so forth. He's a very beautiful man. I've seen, stayed in touch with those people. When Lowell got the job to produce Happy End, yeah. Little Feet got a salvational means of employment. Uh, Warner Brothers changed their minds to give them another shot at a okay. record. Okay. You see, the, so the synchro- social synchronicity was just perfect. Right. And it's fun to look at it. And I think you have noticed it. In the profile of it, as you can see, somehow or another, there was a lot of social activity. And believe me, it was dawn to dusk and sometimes dusk to dawn. Really? And it was just everybody was working very hard. Yeah. And there was a reason for it. We were up against headwinds that haven't been seen since until the election of Donald Trump. (laughs) I would like to ask you about your approach to arranging specifically for something that has like a very organic feel to it. For example, uh, you mentioned Phil Oaks, that that greatest hits record that you did with him, where it's sort of like a folky background. And then the more avant-garde strings that come in seem to reflect him as an artist in a way. I'm wondering how you approach that and, and the, the one that I mentioned before, One Meatball, where it doesn't take over, but it's so signature at the same time. I'm just wondering how you, as, as an arranger, approach those kind of pieces. Well, on, on One Meatball, uh, for example, uh, you hear the waiter loudly call, and on the word call, I, I, I modulate up a half step. Now, Rye will never forgive me for doing that, but <laughs> because it sounded so Broadway. And in fact, it is Broadway. It's the moment uh-huh. that, jo- uh, that uh, George C. Cohen went down on his knees to, to, uh, uh, in a plea for Mama, and they turned on the uh, uh, audience lights, and the orchestra modulated up a half step. To me, to me Rye Cooter's first record was all about to fulfill the, my socialistic ambitions to remind everybody that there is income disparity that we Uh are with people with the poor are always with us that record did that that's why he had the right to sing the blues and he'd studied them i told you i'm from mississippi was born in mississippi and how i feel about about uh, culture rape yeah so the the arrangement there uh was was a lot of fun. You know, right in the middle, for example, Ry Cooter's record, it's in the middle of Do, Re, Mi. Right. There's a Mexican song in there. There are a lot of subtleties on the record. It's just as wonderful, and it invites re-listening. And of course, obviously, you listen to it. The reason that I think that Ry Cooter's record stands out, and Phil Oaks' Uh, record is of the same it's just it's un- unavoidable uh, uh, bent I have to try to bring the street into the parlors of the elite uh-huh. and try to bring the elite into the street I get and it. and 
So, so what it is, basically, is let's look at folk idioms, like our lingua franca, like ours, like our lingua franca. That's what Roots music is all about. Anybody Absolutely. understands it. It's in fado and so forth, or the blues. It all has to do with the component of like an uneducated guess. Right. Then being framed for perpetuity, to, for, to preserve it, to make it noticed, to give it a framework, and to give it a larger audience. Now, you might think that I'm half-cocked on this, but when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I loved the music of Gottschalk when he became of New, of New Orleans, when he went to become the court pianist uh, in Spain, uh-huh. Uh, with an oh, unfortunate love affair with the queen. They got rid of him after a few years. <laughs> but he got, got away with murder. We wouldn't have Malagania today without Gottschalk having written it down. We wouldn't have a lot of Cuban music if Gottschalk had not written it down. Uh-huh. So liter- literature, and a lot of people, the, the people I remember, uh, most of my life I've been plagued by people who take great pride that they don't read music. It's like it's an accomplishment not to read music. Well, that's stupid. Fact yeah. is, it's just another way of doing music. And what I have been is in no man's land, somewhere between those collisional forces. Uh-huh. Extemporaneous music that is totally illiterate but well-informed and music that is literate and sometimes informed. We're all okay with you being in that no man's land because that seems to be where, <laughs> <laughs> where you thrive. <laughs> my, bro- my brother's a retired Methodist minister. Damn good that he got through seminary being an epileptic of the drugs they gave him. I really admire my elder brother, the last of four. He called me from Cleveland. He has no idea what in, uh, insanities I've been associating with all these years. Uh-huh. He guesses. He okay. sees it. But he said that a friend of his wanted to, in Cleveland he lives, outside Cleveland, and a, a man he met, he said, wanted to, to um, propose my induction to the, uh, to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I uh-huh. said to my brother Dick, the retired Methodist minister, who doesn't go out to restaurants, by the way, uh-huh. uh, he said uh, that the man wanted to induct me into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame out there in Cleveland. And uh, he wanted to know how I felt about that. And I had to admit that I, that, that was uh, absolutely revolting. There's nothing that I thought would be more trivial or trivializing. Because I do not believe in idolatry in any form. I don't like monarchism. I understand that. Don't believe in the, hall, uh, the star system. I, I think that, that the Grammys themselves are insultory and contradictory contradictory to the production of art and the inclusion of all people of goodwill. And uh, to me, just to look at it, it's a bunch of horse shit. And the tuxedo tuxedo crowd, it is all, to me, really unfitting. And I told my brother to discourage it, that because I have work to do, and it better be better. It better be better. How are your hands these days? I know you've had problems. Are you back playing, well, or what's the, thing, the scoop? No, I do, I do have problems, and I've found out there's something, that there, there's something else other than surgery now that, that I'm considering. But, you know, it comes and it goes. It, it, it clamps. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, you're, the, you're the windshield, I'm the bug. Right. You know, it's like very quick stuff. Wow. And it just, 
yeah, it's, it's, you know, without provocation, except that it's a percussive instrument. And I play, um, I play with great enthusiasm. These are dark times. And I think of that, the way I play piano it should be something to make that my protest should be as Phil Oaks recommended in beauty. Yes. In yes. such dark times, in such ugly times, I, that my I totally protest agree. should be with you. <laughs> yeah. Are are you planning any concerts or anything like that, or are you kind of steering clear? Well, of... the next the next one, the the only other one that's really that is really in in discussion is the American Academy in Rome in uh, on May sixteenth, fifteenth, and sixteenth, I think, or sixteenth and seventeenth. Okay. The American Academy, and that would be with the Mamondrian String Quartet plus yeah. Upright and Harp, coming Beautiful. in from Amsterdam. But but the project that I'm working on now is. Well, I'm doing a couple, but principally right now, providing an hour of, of orchestrated gospel music for the string band Marley's Ghost to perform with the Seattle Symphony and beyond. Oh, wow, cool. And that is a lot of fun. Oh, Steve, it's so wonderful. We, we need oh. stuff like that. We need people like you to, to remind well, us what it's all we about. We need people like Steve. We need people like you, too. And, and I just... I've got just got got to add before I head out to my my oblivion. You were so kind to me in in Canada. You lived by the the rules of engagement. You pitied the poor immigrant. You gave me a great chance to contribute to your show and be on your team. And uh, I'm hoping that someday we get another chance to do something like that. I hope so too. It was a highlight of my life and uh, uh, unforgettable. So anyway, uh, some <laughs> there will always there will always be a maple leaf when I think of rag. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope to see you yeah. soon, man. Great, me too, Steve. Let's work on it. Let's, let's conspire. Okay, I'll Thank- see you soon. Thanks so much, Van Dyke. All right, that's Mr. Van Dyke Parks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got a. Big kick out of that as much as I did talking to Van Dyke. It's always an adventure and very entertaining and informative. I hope you found that too. Um, thanks so much for checking it out. Please subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next week for another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. and Soul Shakers is recorded at the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. Please visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. Thanks always to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for his help with research and to Michael Glusak for editing, music placement, and mixing. <laughs>